right on cue. That's my girl. <laughs> she dreads this as much as all of you do. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to continue to worship the Lord with our gifts and tithes and offerings. And this week, as I was doing my New Testament reading, I came across the story of uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, which as a kid was always one of my favorite stories because I was always hungry. And so I was like, yes, Jesus is the God who can feed me. That's a good thing to have. And the whole idea of it is Jesus has been teaching all day. People have gathered out in the wilderness to listen to him. And the disciples start getting a little bit worried, and they say, Jesus, we need to send them all home now. Like, stop teaching. They need to go because they're getting hungry, and we don't have any food for them. So let's get them home so they can go home. And, and Jesus says, well, you feed them. And they're like, ah, Jesus, you got us. You're always playing around. Like, that's impossible. It was 5,000 people. They said, even if we went and we had, let's just say we had the money to buy enough food for 5,000 people, there just literally isn't enough food for us to be able to buy in the surrounding villages. So let's get back to plan A and send them all home, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, go out there and find what you can. So they're, they're going on and looking. And there's this little boy, and he has just a couple of loaves and a few fish. And if I'm that little boy, here's what I'm having. I'm seeing they're going, hey, got any food, got any food? I'm like, oh, 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 oh. Like, I'm trying to scarf that down before they get to me to take my Lunchable away. And, but instead, though, what this boy does is does opposite of what human nature is. Human nature is I need to take care of myself. Human nature is fear comes in that says that I'm not, if I give away what I have, I'm not going to be able to have enough for me. So I have to hold on to it really tightly. But this little boy understood something about the kingdom. He understood something about Jesus is that when we give to him, he always ends up being our provision. So he gives it to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, he does the miracle where they feed all 5,000 people. Now, unfortunately, what's been taught a lot of times is this idea of that you have to overcome fear of giving so that you can give, so that God's just going to give you all kinds of money back. Did this kid get 5,000 people's worth of food back? He didn't. God took what he gave and miraculously multiplied it, not for the little boy. The little boy, he still got to eat dinner with everybody else. He still had his provision from Jesus. But what he gave away became a blessing for everyone else. When we give, we don't give so that we can get even more, so that we can have even more. We give so that Jesus can take what little we have, and it might just be a few loaves and a few fish. And we have to say, Jesus, what I have cannot meet the need that's around me, but I'm giving it to you and asking you to do something miraculous with it. Not for my benefit. You're always going to be my provision, but for the benefit of others. So Jesus, as we give to you this morning, we're so grateful that you are a God of miraculous multiplication. And Jesus, as we give to you, we pray that you would do the miracle like you did for this little boy, and that you would take what we give and that you would multiply it to be a blessing to others. Jesus, we're so grateful you always are our provision. And Jesus, would you work in our hearts in the areas where we want to hold on or where we have fear or where we only give for our own benefit, Jesus, and that we would give for you and so that the world might know you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're new here today, thank you so much for being our guest. There's a lot of things you could have done, like enjoy the return of winter, but you chose to be here with us, and we're so grateful for that. We're not going to make you stand up or do anything weird like that, but in the seat backs in front of you, there are some communication cards We'd love to have you fill one of those out and turn it in at Guest Central, which is just as you exit the auditorium, you'll see Guest Central sign on the wall. We have some people there that would love to be able to meet you and greet you properly. We have a little radiant gift bag as a gift for you, a way to say thank you so much for being here. And uh, we just want to be able to get to know you a little bit. And then also we have our breakthrough series coming up starting February 18th, which is going to be awesome. For six weeks, we're going to be looking at how it was that people in the Bible saw breakthrough in their life because every one of us, 
We have needs. Every one of us has an area where we need Jesus to move miraculously in our life to bring breakthrough to us. And for six weeks, we're going to look scripturally at what it was that people did to see uh, God's breakthrough in their life. Now, if you come here on Sunday mornings, it'll be great, but you'll only be getting half of what's available for you. And we have some breakthrough hosts, which will, for six weeks, once a week, meet in their home, and it'll be a 10, 15-minute video that you watch that goes farther on the teaching, and then the ability to really process through it together. And there's this beautiful workbook that we're going to give to all of you for free because we just really think it's going to make that much of a difference in your life. So we want to invest in it. Now, you can't sign up for it yet. Next Sunday, you'll be able to sign up for it. But get that on your calendar. Start thinking about it. Next Sunday, you'll be able to do it here, um, or you'll be able to do it online at radiantA2.com. So get ready for it. It's going to be incredible. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing in our series, 21 Days of Prayer, and you might have noticed it is day 28 of that. It's not that I'm really bad at math. I'm just really bad at planning. And so... We spent the first 21 days of just talking about how we pray, why we pray, what happens when you fast, things like that. And then I decided we're going to take another 21 days to start implementing this into our life. Say, so, hey, now let's start making prayer a priority and a part of our discipline. Let's start fasting, whether it's you say I'm going to fast for one day a week or I'm going to you know, fast for 21 days or a week, whatever it is. But just start digging into prayer and to fasting and to seeking after Jesus in that way. And then there's some things that I'm teaching on for the next few weeks uh, that we're, we're really seeking after for us as a church. And last week I talked about passion for Jesus, that we want to be a church that is just our all-consuming fire. The one great desire that we have is that we want Jesus, and we're going to find him. We're going to seek after him and do whatever it takes. But what this world needs isn't a church that's really good at following all of the laws. It has great theology, though I'm a big fan of great theology. But they need a church that's been transformed and changed into people who are passionate about the one who loves us and who has saved us and set us free. And then uh, this week what we're going to talk about is having great faith. And this is one of the things that I think that we as a church need as we're moving into a new season, is that we have to become people of great faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, which is this beautiful chapter, it's all about some of the heroes of our faith that have come before us. It begins to walk through uh, sort of the lifestyle of these people of faith and what it was that God was able to do in and through them because of their faith. And it begins in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. And it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old received their commendation. So what it's starting out by saying is that faith is trust in God. If you want to know a, a simple definition for what faith is, uh, for us when it comes to Christianity, it's a faith in God. It's just trusting in him, trusting that he's able to do the things that he said he's going to do. It's trusting him with directing our lives. It's trusting him with saying, God, I'm going to follow after you and everything that I am with everything that I do. And it uses two words to describe how faith is. And the first word it says is it's an assurance. And an assurance uh, in the Greek, it actually talks about a legal document. Now, if you bought a home, how do you know that you actually own it and you didn't just give someone all of your money? It's because they give you a deed. It's a legal document that says that this is your home. Someone can't just come in and tell you to get out of the house, this is my house. Actually, it's not because here's the deed that says I owe a whole bunch of money on it. This is my house. This is my debt. This is what I own. And so they can't come in and do anything about that. I'm confident that I own my home because I have a legal deed that says that I own it and I have a right to it. The other thing that it says is that it's a conviction of things that are unseen. Now, we can't see God. We see all sorts of things that he's doing. 
Uh, we see evidence and proof of him everywhere we look. We get to talk to him, enjoy a relationship with him. But it's in someone that we can't physically see right now in this age that we live in. But we have a conviction of the fact that he is and a conviction of the fact that he's faithful. Conviction it means to convince. Uh, it's usually used when two people are arguing, like, you, like we all do on Facebook. Like, this is why my politician is the best one. I lay out this beautiful argument on Facebook, and all of your friends say, you're right, I'm changing my vote, you have convinced me. Has that ever happened to you? Never has, never will. You don't even need to do it. So there you go, I just saved you a whole bunch of time <laughs> and saved you a whole bunch of friends from blocking you. But what happens is when you have an argument or a conversation with someone and your mind changes, it's because there's conviction that's entered into it. They've convinced you of something. Well, what happens is the Holy Spirit enters in and the Holy Spirit convinces us, the Holy Spirit convicts us that God is faithful, that even though we can't see him, he is, that even though we can't touch him, we can put all of our faith and all of our trust and all of our hope in God. That's what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. So we have a trust in God that's based on an assurance that we have. We know that we know, and there's a conviction that's occurred inside of our hearts that's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And what faith will do then is it produces a commendation. For these people who lived with a trust in God, who lived with an assurance and a conviction of God, it says that they received their commendation by their faith. That commendation means it's a high praise that's spoken over them. If I were to tell you, hey, you're doing a great job in spelling. I have commended your spelling. You have a high reputation now as a speller. I actually won the sixth grade spelling bee, and my spelling has not advanced since the sixth grade. So you didn't need to know that, but neither here nor there. Anyways, what happens, though, is that what God is saying is that you are receiving your commendation from God based on your faith. It's not based on what you do. We all think that I have to do something. You know what? God's going to be real happy with me. He's going to be real pleased with me if I do something really significant. If I can grow in this skill, then I'm going to receive praise from God. He's like, good job, Jeremy. You're, you're killing it. You're finally doing it. You know what? God is not impressed by anything that any of us do. Do you know who's not impressed by my preaching? Other than all of you? Jesus. Jesus has never been sitting there listening to me like, that's a good word. Yeah, making some notes on that one. Preach, Jeremy, preach. Like, he's not shouting me down because he's not impressed by what I do because he can preach so much better than I can. So much better. Basically, anybody could, but especially Jesus. And the, I'm glad that he's not impressed by what I do. I'm glad that I don't have to try to earn his approval or his favor over me based on the things that I do because what of us could measure up against the one who nothing is impossible for? Like, we don't have a shot of impressing God, but we spend so much of our time doing it. You know what? God would really use me if I just got better at this. If I could just sing better, then God's going to use me. Well, he might use you as a worship leader, but, like, he's still not going to be impressed. Tracy, like, she was up here, she can sing. Like, I sing, I sound like that in the shower in my own head, but when she's up here singing, she can sing, and we're all impressed by it. Like, wow, that's amazing. I want to sing like that. Jesus isn't impressed. I'm not saying that to like, sorry, Tracy, like you're not good enough. Jesus just isn't impressed by the things that we do. So what is Jesus impressed by? How do we receive our commendation from God? It's by our faith. That's what God cares about inside of us. 
This is, there's two different examples of it. Because our faith will either leave Jesus astonished by how little faith we have, or he will be amazed by how great our faith is. It says this in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. And it's talking about he's gone back to his hometown. And you know how it is when you go home, and everybody's like, you think you're special? I remember you from when you were a kid. Like, nobody thinks that you've done anything with your life when you go back to your hometown. And this is what happens to Jesus. He goes home, and it says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which I think is pretty amazing in and of itself. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. It says that Jesus goes home, and he's wanting to heal people and raise the dead and do all of these miraculous things for the people that he grew up with, the people that he, the first people that he ever loved. This is his home. You know how your heart has an attachment to the hometown, your family, the people you grew up with. You want good things for them. He goes home to give them good things, but because they don't have any faith in him, he can't do anything, and it says that he's actually amazed at their lack of faith. There's some things I want God to be amazed at about me, but my lack of faith is not one of those things where I want Jesus to be amazed by my life. But here's the other example. Some guy that's never met Jesus, a Roman centurion. He's not even Jewish. Not a part of the family of God. He's not a part of the in-group. He doesn't have all of the understanding of the prophets and the Old Testament, the Torah, all of that stuff. He doesn't have any of it. But he hears about Jesus. And what it is that Jesus is doing. And he has a servant that's sick, so he sends some people to go and to get Jesus and to bring Jesus back so that his servant, who he loves, can be healed. And this is what it says in Luke 7, 6 through 10. So Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and to meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. This is the opposite. This is someone who says, I believe that Jesus can do everything that he said he can do. And I understand something about authority. Is that I don't have to go and to see it done myself. All I have to do is say something and those under authority have to go and to do it. I recognize that Jesus, he's not just a prophet, he's just not a teacher, he's not just a healer, but he's the king. He's the king of all the world. All authority is his, which means that all he has to do is say it. He's taken his faith to another level. All the other people, the, the Jewish people that had faith in Jesus, was like, come lay your hand on me, come touch me, all of these sorts of things. That centurion could have said what they're doing is every time Jesus touches someone, they get healed. But he, his faith is even greater than that. His understanding of the way that God works is even greater than that. He says all he has to do is speak the words, and the words that he speaks are so powerful that whatever he speaks happens. So my trust in my faith is in the words that come out of the mouth of God. When he says it, it happens. So Jesus, you don't have to trouble yourself of coming all the way over here to lay hands on my servant. You just have to say, be healed, and he's going to be healed. That is some faith. And that is a faith that Jesus says, I'm amazed by that. 
I haven't even found that kind of faith in my own people and the people that I've been revealing myself to over the course of 1,500 years. They don't even have that kind of faith in me. It's this Greek guy who's a Roman soldier who, who understands this and his faith leads to the miraculous inside of his life and it leads to his commendation. We're all pursuing praise. Every single one of us. It's a desire we have. We weren't meant to go through our life, I mean, emotionally, psychologically, we weren't meant to go through our life having everybody say, you're terrible, you're an idiot, you're bad at everything that you do. You need someone who's saying, I love you, good job, you did it, I'm happy, way to go. You need someone doing that. It's why our kids, they always, hey, daddy, daddy, look at me, daddy, 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 look at me, what? Good job. I don't know what you're doing, but great job. Like, they just have that need for approval from me that's built into them every single one of our kids. And the reason that's there is because our parents are supposed to be stewards of us. Our parents are supposed to teach us about the love that God has for us. When we see our parents, we're supposed to begin to understand the love that our Heavenly Father has for us and the way that we can trust Him. You know why my kids can trust me? is because I will move heaven and earth to provide them everything that they need. But you know what? I'm going to fail. That's just the reality of it for every single one of us. We will never be able to be God. Even though we're supposed to be like God to them, we will never be God to them. So we need to parent our children in a way that points them to the Father who never disappoints, who never lets them down. And when we do that, we model the kind of trust and the faith that they can have in Him. We model the kind of approval that we find in our Father. I'm not impressed. I guess I'm kind of impressed by some of the things my kids do. Usually more in a negative way, like, I can't believe you just did that. But you know what I really like about them? Is when they love me. When they trust me. That's what I'm looking for in my kids. You could grow up and do nothing. I'm still going to love you. That's the way we're supposed to be with God. What happens is we get into our, you know, we start socializing, we break outside of our family. Now we don't care about approval from our parents as much. We want approval from our friends. Our friends don't have our best interest at heart. Our friends will pressure us to do things that we ought not to do that will bring destruction between us and our relationship with our parents, us and our relationship with God, that will bring destruction to us physically, spiritually, emotionally. And the carrot that they hold in front of us is I'll approve of you, I'll accept you, I'll speak highly of you. And because there's that desire inside of our heart, we're tempted to go after it. But we have to make the decision to say, who am I looking for praise from? Am I looking for praise from my heavenly Father who created me, who loves me perfectly, who gave himself for me, who's able to lead me into life and into prospering of my soul? Or am I looking for the approval of my dumb friends who don't care about me, and as soon as I don't go along with them, they'll backtalk me, and they'll stab me in the back and do every other sort of terrible thing. Who are we looking for approval from? Because you're only going to get approval from one of them. The world will do everything it can to try to lead you along. If you believe this, then you'll be accepted, then we'll think highly of you. If you will compromise your faith, if you'll compromise your beliefs, if you'll just change this one thing, if you'll come with us and you'll do this, then we're going to speak highly of you. 
We all want that. We might recognize that's a bad idea, but it's a desire inside of every single one of our hearts. If I just work really hard, if I do something significant in my career, then, then I'm going to be known. Then I will find some sort of a contentment and purpose in my life because other people are accepting me and thinking highly of me. And that's all based on what you do, what you do, what you do. And Jesus just says, I just want faith from you. I just want you to trust me. All I want from you is for you to love me and to trust me because of the love that you have for me. And when you do that, that's when you receive the reward. That's when we hear the, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, daughter. Well done, son. It's funnier than I thought. That's what we live for. We're either going to live for the voice and the approval of God or the world that's around us. And the world that's around us will always do everything it can to distract us and to knock us away from what God's called us to. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it starts talking about the different, the different people, these heroes of the faith. And what it says is Noah's one of the examples. What did Noah do? He built an ark in the middle of a desert. Not near the ocean. In the middle of the desert. Why? There's a flood coming. Imagine being his friend. So what you doing, Noah? Building an ark out of gopher wood. It's gopher wood. And they didn't even know. Like, Why? Because there's a flood coming. A flood? We live in the desert. Yeah, I know. We've got to build a really big boat, though. All right, Noah. You even think, like, okay, it's a phase that's going to pass. So you just leave him alone at first. Then you notice that he's still doing it. He's still building a boat in the middle of the desert. Noah, like, we need to have a talk. I'm worried about you. This isn't right. You, you think God talked to you? So you're telling me that God told you to build a boat in the middle of the ark, or a boat in the middle of the desert. Like, no, this is not, Noah, that's not something God would say. A year later, he's still building it. Noah, you're stupid. You need to stop this right now. God did not tell you to build an ark a hundred years into it. Still building an ark, still waiting for this magical flood that's supposed to be coming. Everybody says they're mocking him, they're ridiculing him, all the way up to the point of where it starts raining, it says that they're mocking him and ridiculing him. But he didn't care about what the world thought about him, he didn't care about the approval or the commendation from other people, he cared about the commendation that comes from Jesus, which wasn't even based on the fact that he was building an ark, it was based on the fact that his trust and all of his faith was in Jesus and what it was that Jesus had spoken to him. And that's what we have to decide. Do I, am I willing to endure the ridicule and the scorn and the derision of the world around me, even from my friends and family and people that are supposed to have my best interests in mind, because all I'm looking at is being faithful to Jesus so that I hear his commendation and his praise over my life. That's what we live for. But it's going to mean conflict in our life when we make that decision to live with a trust in Jesus. But then what happens is when we decide to live trusting in God, is faith directs our life. It begins to direct the different things that we do. We decide, God, I'm going to trust you above everything else, above every other voice, every other desire. God, I trust you more than I trust anything else around me. I have an assurance of the things I hope for. I have a conviction of the things that I cannot see. And when that happens, it begins to change the way that we live our lives. It begins to reorder. If your number one priority in life is to make money, well, then here's what happens. Is every decision that you make is filtered through the lens of what's going to 
accrue more money and protect the money that I already have. Well, now I want, I'm not going to be like a teacher because I want to make some money, so I got to go get a different job, get a different degree because I want to make money. Well, now I have to make sure that I can't do these things and I have to do those things because my number one goal is to make money. Now I can't spend time with my family and my friends because I have to work more, get more overtime, get more money, get this business idea off the ground. I have to launch this product. It's all about what do I have to do to make money. Your life becomes reordered after that. And that can be for any desire that you have. It could be for your family. It could be for your education. It could be for the getting a bass boat, whatever it might be. But whatever you put your trust in to provide something for you, that becomes the priority of your life, and it reorders and directs your life so everything is about serving that one thing. When we make the decision to put our trust in Jesus, then it reorders our life to come after him. One of the examples it talks about is Abel. That's the first one that it talks about in Hebrews. Is it says that he brought an acceptable offering to God by faith. What was he doing? Back then there was no money. Like what a magical time to have lived in. Everything was cheap and strawberries. It was all just what you could grow or what you could raise. That was all of your currency. That was all of your provision and security. So what does he do? It says that because he wants to make a sacrifice to God to show how, that's a, when we give, it's a way that we worship God. Say, God, you are worthy. You're so worthy that I'm giving to you, and I'm giving you the best. I'm giving you the first of what I have. If you know anything about animals, if you're trying to grow your herd, the best thing you can do is to get that first one you have to have babies, because then those babies have babies, and those babies' babies have babies. The worst thing that you can do is to lose the first that you have because now it sets you back an entire generation in growing your herd. The worst thing you can do is to lose the best animal that you have because I'm, I grew up on a goat farm. It's like you want the right confirmation and they're the ones that are going to be strong and pass on good genes and birth easy and all of that stuff to grow your herd. So what does Abel do? He comes and he says, God, I'm giving you the best and I'm giving you the first. Saying that, you know what? I do want a bigger herd. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to make clothes out of their wool and I want to eat their flesh. Like Those are all good desires. But I'm not my own provision. I'm not looking to a sheep to be my provider. I'm looking to you. So I'm reordering my life so that now even my financial security comes under alignment of you. God, you're first in my life, so I'm giving you the first of what I have. And I believe that you are the one who's going to be my provider. It's costly. It hurts me to give you this. But the thing that's ordering my life and every area of my life is my trust in you. I have an assurance, Jesus. I have a conviction. And because of that, I can give you my first. It talks about Enoch. He's one of my favorite guys in the Bible. It doesn't say a whole lot about him. But what Enoch did was he wanted to know God. He wanted to know him. Not just like, yeah, I read about, I felt bored Jesus in Sunday school. He wanted to know God. And he would go out there and he would walk with God. Now, if his number one goal had been to acquire more wealth, he would have spent that time working. If his number one goal was to get a better education, he would have spent his time studying. If his number one goal was just to spend all of his time with his family, he would have spent his time with his family. But the number one goal was to know Jesus. So he sacrifices time away from work. He sacrifices time away from family. He sacrifices time away from his leisure, his career, whatever else it might be, because he wants to spend his time pursuing God and knowing him. And you know what happens? Everybody's saying, like, Enoch, 
just wait till you get to heaven. We're all going to get to know Jesus. It's not a race. Like, just wait. Or you can't know God that deeply and that intimately on this earth. It's just not possible. But he had a trust that when we seek after him, we find him. He had a conviction in his heart that when we draw near to God, that he draws near to us. And he wasn't willing to just walk through this life not knowing God, to living distant and far removed from him. He wanted to know God. And it says one day he's walking with God, and then he was no more. It says that he never died. God just took him up. His friends were stupid. He trusted Jesus and what it was that God had called him to, and he pursued it, sacrificing everything else in his life because his trust was in Jesus, which meant that now his life was reordered. Every aspect of his life was reordered so that it was reflecting the trust that he had in Jesus. We all have a lot of desires in our heart. We want to provide for our families. We want money. We want education. We want our career to do well. We want to, you know, hang out with our friends. We have these leisure activities we want to pursue. Right now, one of those things is what you've put the most trust in. And right now, one of those things is ordering the rest of your life. And the rest of your life is all about serving this one thing. What is that thing? When you decide, Jesus... I have all these other desires, and they're great desires. Get the best education you can. Have the best family you can have. Work as hard as you can at your career. Do all of those things. They're all good. Make as much money as you can. Save as much as you can. Give away as much as you can. But never let that be the driving force in your life. The driving force of our life is our faith in Jesus. It's our trust in God. And that means that I'm willing to make sacrifices in my career. I'm willing to make sacrifices in my education, sacrifices in my family, sacrifices in my leisure, sacrifices in my finances, because what's going to order my life and make the direction of my life is trust in Jesus. And it's what every single one of these heroes of the faith did. Abraham's a great example of it. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heavens and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What this whole passage is saying is that faith looks forward. When we live by faith, faith is always looking forward. It's always looking to the future. It's not on about the right here and right now. It's not even on the past that's behind us, but it's always about the future. And it even says that all of these people, all of these heroes of the faith that were being listed in chapter 11, it says that every single one of them died in faith. 
It says that none of them received the fullness of God's promise for them. Not a one of them. But on their deathbed, they still looked into the future, it says, through the eye of faith, and they greeted the promise that God had made them from afar. They didn't look at the world around them and say, this is what God did. If you look at Abraham, he's 100 years old when he gets his son. 100 years old. It's a medical miracle. His wife is 90. 25 years. When God gives him the promise, he's 75. He's like, you know, we're already kind of pushing things biologically here. I don't know if this is going to happen, but I believe you. Well, now 25 years go by before he even has his first son, his only son. And it says, this is the medical report that they give to him. His body was as good as dead. That's not what you want to hear from the doctor. His wife, it says she's way too old. Biologically, 90-year-olds can't have babies. But how did she conceive? It says, by faith, because she believed the promise of him who made it. She believed that God was faithful. Her trust wasn't in biology. Her trust was in the word of God and that his supernatural word supersedes all of the natural laws that we see around us. If I'm 100 years old and my wife is 90, it's going to be pretty tough for me to believe that I'm going to have a child. That's why I'm not Abraham. But I want to be. I want that kind of faith. It's the kind of faith God's called every one of us to. And here's how much faith Abraham had. It says that he's not even looking, as this whole blessing thing is going on, it says that he's looking into the future. He has one son. The promise, remember, is that he's going to have more children than are grains of sand on the beach, more ancestors than there are stars in the sky, that all the nations are going to be blessed for him. When he dies, he has one son. Just one son. Did God fail? No. The promise was still coming. See, what, what his hope was then, it says that he wasn't looking for the city that he could build. He wasn't just looking for God's blessing here and now on this earth. It says that the city that he was looking for is the city that God builds, which means that he's looking to the restoration of all things. When you read the book of Revelation, what do we see? There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. There's a new city, and it's the city that God builds. It's the perfect city. All injustice is put away. Death and sin are no more. All suffering, oppression, it's all gone forever. That's the city that Abraham's looking forward to. That's the city that he's seen in the future. He knows it's not about him, and he knows it's not about his own blessing. He knows it's about all of those who are coming after him. And it's not about what we can get for ourselves here on this earth and this now. It says that he's looking forward to something better that is to come, something that only God can provide. And he considered himself an exile on this earth. This isn't my home. This isn't where I belong. I'm here for a while, but I'm not a citizen here. I'm an exile. And I'm awaiting the return of my king, and I'm awaiting for him to build his city. I'm waiting for him to restore all of creation and to marry heaven and earth once again. That's the hope that he has. That's the promise that he's looking forward to. That's the promise that he looks down into the future, and he's able to see, and he's able to greet. And it says that all of these people that are people of faith, they never looked back at where they had come out of. Abraham came out of a place of comfort. He came out of a place of provision and wealth. He was living in his father's home. And what does God say? I want you to leave that place where you're comfortable. I want you to leave that place where you have friends and family. I want you to leave that place where you're living in a home. And I want you to go out into the desert where you're going to live in a tent. 
because they have a promise for you. What would have happened? Why does it say that he didn't turn back and look? Because when the tent's out here in the middle of the desert, in daddy's house with someone that's going to wash your socks for you and fold them is back here, I want to go home. The promise is over here, though. This is what God has for me. This is the blessing that's going to come to me. This is the blessing that's going to come to the nations. I'm so much more comfortable back here. That's why it says if we want to live by faith, we can't turn and look back at what God's called us out of because we'll be tempted to want to go back home. We want to go back to the place of comfort. We can't look back. We keep our eyes forward. We keep our eyes on the promise that God has for us. And it doesn't matter what we see. Our faith is in him. God might have promised you generations, more descendants than you can count. You have one son. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus that he's still going to make it happen. You might go to your deathbed never seeing the fullness of what it was that God said he was going to do in your life. And that's okay and that's good because I don't want what God does through me because of my faithfulness to be greater than my one lifetime can contain on this earth. I'm not looking forward to just what we can do here as Radiant Church. I'll tell you what, I'm, I've given my life to building Radiant Church, to serving here, to being faithful here, to teaching the Bible, to encouraging people to live a life of faith. But if that's all we ever do, and there's no resurrection that awaits us, if there's no future city that God's building that we all get to live in where all sin and death and oppression and injustice is put away once and for all, this isn't good enough. I'm looking to something that's better than what we could ever have here and now. I am grateful. I am so thankful for what we have. One year ago right now, I was sitting there eating lots of ice cream thinking, how are we going to raise another $170,000 in two weeks to get a building? I am grateful. I am so grateful for what God's been able to do because we've put our trust in him as a church. But this isn't it. This life isn't it. I'm looking to something that's better. Just like Enoch did. Just like Abel did. Just like Moses did. Just like Abraham. Just like every other person of faith. Is I'm looking to the promise of something that's better than what we could ever have here and now. God, thank you for your blessing here and now. But I'm looking to the future of what it is that you have for us. I want something better. And then it continues on. And uh, it says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness because of might and war, but foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They're looking for something better than this life has to offer us. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What it's saying is that faith produces in us miracles and perseverance. You see, 
When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that might mean that God's going to come and he's going to empower you supernaturally to be able to defeat armies. He might come. It might make us that the dead are raised and restored back to you. It might be that healing comes to you, miraculous financial provision. It might be that he comes and he delivers you from the affliction that you find yourself in. Thank God for that by faith. But it also says that there's going to be some of us where we're going to be beaten, we're going to be mercilessly mocked and humiliated, we're going to be sawn in half. That's not the one I'm hoping for. People suffered because of their faith. We always just want the miraculous supernatural provision for deliverance, but sometimes it's miraculous supernatural provision for you to be able to persevere through the suffering that you're going through. See, the world's going to do everything that it can to make you compromise your faith. To make it so you say, Jesus, I don't trust you fully. My faith isn't fully in you and in what it is that you've called me to. It's not in the city that you're building that I'm looking forward to. I'd rather just be accepted by the world if it means that they're going to accept me. I'd rather just be accepted by the world if it means I don't have to get beaten and made fun of and sawn in half. That sounds so terrible. But that's the reality for people that are heroes of the faith. Sometimes it's the miracle of provision of deliverance. Sometimes it's the miracle of provision for strength and power to be able to go through whatever it is that you're going through right now without losing your faith and your trust in Jesus. We all know which one we prefer. Sometimes Jesus needs us to suffer so that he can do something else that's even better. This is what it says. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What this is saying is that faith looks to something better. I already said that. I got all out of line. Do you know why they went there and they suffered? Do you know why when the persecution came, they weren't willing to compromise and just keep quiet about their faith or their trust in Jesus? Because they looked out and they saw us. You know what happens when you're in pain? You want it to end. And you'll do anything so that it will end. There's been times where I've been in pain because of all the stuff I've gone through where I was like, Jesus, you either need to heal me right now or kill me right now. Like, I don't care either one but I just cannot take this. Just deliver me from this pain, Jesus. When you're in pain, you don't think about everybody else. You just think about yourself. And that's why sometimes, like, you know, suicide is a selfish decision, but it doesn't seem that way when you're in pain. You're not thinking about anybody else. You're just in so much pain that you just want release from that. When we're in pain, we'll start thinking about just ourselves. But you know what happens when you're a person of faith? When the pain comes, you don't just think about yourself. You think about those that are yet to come. You see, they could have said, Jesus, just return now. As I'm, being, as I'm suffering, as I'm being tortured, as my life is being demanded of me, Jesus, would you just come now? I'll bring the city now, Jesus. Put away all oppression and wrongdoing, all injustice. Put away sin and death once and for all, Jesus. Would you come and do it now? But it says that they had this perspective that they didn't want to go on to perfection without us meaning that they didn't want perfection, the total restoration of heaven and earth when Jesus comes. They didn't want to step into that without us. 
because they were able to look down through the ages of time and know that there would be other people who God was calling into his family. And that if it all ended on that day when they cried out in their pain, that none of us would be here, that none of us would have the opportunity to step into the kingdom and receive the reward and the blessing that comes from the life of faith. We wouldn't have the opportunity to know Jesus and enter into completion and perfection with them. So they said, I hate this with everything inside of me, but I'm willing to suffer. I hate this with everything inside of me, but this life isn't about me. It's not how much blessing I can get for myself. It's about God because of my faith in you and my trust in you. Would you use this life that I've submitted to you to be a blessing to other people? So it's not just me that enters into perfection, but it's all of those around me. I want to see God do something in our church, in Radiant Church. I want us to be a church of faith that believes and trusts Jesus fully and is able to be used by him to usher more people to become brothers and sisters with us children of the living God who've been saved and set free and healed and restored I want them to be able to walk into perfection with us but it's not even just for us as tempting as it is when you turn on the news and you see the wickedness of the world around us and you say God come soon but not yet Jesus because my children need to know you for Ethan and Brielle and Eliana Jesus don't come yet. Give me the strength to persevere and to endure any suffering that I go through without compromising my faith so that my children will walk into perfection with me. And God, do the same when I look around and I think of the children that we have here that are with us today, the kids that are over there in the kids' ministry right now. For them, Jesus, don't come quite yet, but instead strengthen our faith so that we will endure because we trust in you. And for our children's children and the generation that comes after them, by the eye of faith, we look into the future and say, Jesus, not just for our city, which I am passionate about and I'll lay my life down for, not even just for our state or our nation or our generation, but God, for the generation that comes after us, for the generation that comes after them. God, build my faith so that I can see by the eye of faith the fullness of the promise that you're going to believe. And when I'm on my deathbed, I want to die in faith, not having seen the fullness of everything God promised me, but believing that he who promised is faithful. And I'm going to greet it from afar. God, I wish I could have seen that in my day, but I'm going to greet it from afar. Because I believe that you who promised is faithful. There's some of you this morning, that first step of faith for you is that you need to put your trust in Jesus as king. We talk a lot about accepting Jesus into our heart. That's not what we need to do. We need to accept Jesus as the king of all kings. Who we spend the rest of our life following after and submitting ourselves to. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Jesus, I'm not going to be the one who directs my life anymore. I'm going to let you do that. All these other pursuits that I had and desires that I had, I'm submitting them all to you. God, I want faith my trust in you to be what reorders my life. I want to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. I want to go from being a slave to a son. And that happens by faith. Jesus, I believe you are the king. I believe you are God. I believe that on the cross, you paid the penalty for my sins. Would you forgive me? I've fallen so short of what you've called me to. And Jesus, I need you to free me from the bondage of sin. And you can do that. Jesus, would faith be born inside of my heart today and from now into eternity? Maybe for some of you, that faith has grown cold. 
you don't see how God's going to do it. Maybe there are some promises that God gave you and you've backed down on those things. You listened to some of your friends or family who told you you were crazy for building a boat in the desert. Told you were crazy for being 100 years old and thinking you could have a son. Jesus is calling you to put your faith back in him. Let him stir up that faith in you again. Not to let what you see around you determine your reality, but to let every word that comes from the mouth of God define reality for you. Maybe for some of you, you're seasoned in life and you're disappointed. Because you'd felt like there were some things that God was going to do in your life. You'd hope that he would do more through you. You'd hope that you would do more for him. And you feel like you failed. And you feel like you missed it. Remember, Jesus isn't impressed by what you do. He's impressed by your faith. You recommit yourself to faith in him. You recommit yourself to believing in everything that he's spoken to you and believing that even as you enter into eternity, not having seen what you had hoped for, maybe not measuring up to the own standard that you had set for yourself, the only standard that Jesus set for you is faith. Have you been faithful and recommit to that faithfulness and believing that even you didn't see what you thought you would see, that God is still going to do something through it. Abraham wasn't famous in his day. He wasn't thought of as a hero of faith in his time. He was the old guy that had just one son. Everybody had more sons than him. He could have looked at himself as a failure if he measured himself up about what he'd hoped for, what he'd expected, what other people around him had. But he's a hero of our faith, not because of what he did, but because of the faith that he had that directed every step of his life. And he greeted it from afar. There's things that we aren't going to see. Every single one of these people, it says, died not having seen the fullness of the promise. That's encouraging to me. Because I believe that Jesus is going to do it. Not in my day, in the day of my children. Not in the day of my children and their children's children. Whenever he decides that he's going to do it, but I believe by faith that when everything looks impossible, when it looks like it's all closed up and there's no hope, I believe that he is going to do everything he said that he would do. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's take a moment to pray. Let's ask God to speak to our hearts. Jesus, where are we at with our faith? Holy Spirit, would you come and search us and reveal to us? Would you come and convict us, Holy Spirit? Would you come and wrestle with our hearts? and give us a conviction of the things that are unseen. Some of you this morning, it's that first step. Jesus, you're king, I submit to you. For some of you, you need God to come and supernaturally infuse your faith this morning to stir up the things that you used to hope for but don't anymore. For the areas where you've been looking at the reality around you instead of faith. If that's you this morning, every eye is closed, every head's bowed. If you need God to do something miraculous in your heart for faith this morning, would you raise your hand? This is a sign of saying, God, that's me. God, would you do something inside of my heart? Yes, I see those hands. Thank you. Thank you for that. Jesus, yes, thank you. Thank you. Jesus, for every hand that's raised here, we pray that you would come and meet them. Several times you came to Abraham and reconfirmed 
the covenant that you'd made with him. You spoke to him again to stir up his faith. Jesus, would it be like that this morning for every hand that's raised, that you would come and that you would speak to them, that you would come and that you would minister to their hearts, Jesus, that they would know that they can put their trust in you, that they would know that you are the God who never disappoints, that you are the God who never fails. God, would you stir up a faith in them like, like Sarah had, where she said that she believed that he who promised was faithful and by that was able to conceive the promise. Jesus, we pray for that right now, that promises would be conceived in the hearts of the hands who are raised, Jesus, because they believe you're faithful. And Jesus, as we walk out of here today, that we would walk in faith. God, that we would walk greeting everything from afar, that we would walk the rest of our life looking for something that's better, looking for the city that you're building, not looking just for our own blessing, God, but for the blessing of others. Jesus, would you make us people of great faith that receive a commendation from you? God, strengthen us that we wouldn't look back to what you've called us out of, God. Strengthen us that we wouldn't listen to the other voices that will tell us to turn back, that will tell us to quit and give up. God, strengthen us that we'll be able to have faith for miraculous provision. And God, strengthen us with faith that's going to allow us to persevere through all suffering, through all doubt, through all temptation. Jesus, make Radiant Church a church filled with people of great faith and that you would use us to bless the nations, Jesus. Jesus, for every person who's not here, God, we don't want to enter into completion without them. We don't want to enter into perfection without them. Jesus, for the hurt, the lost, the broken in our city, Jesus, would you use us? They're a part of that promise, and we believe by faith for that. Jesus, for all of those right now that are struggling, whose faith is withering and dying, Jesus, use us to bless them. Jesus, for the generations that are yet to come, God, would this church be stronger and have greater impact and see the more miraculous in the generations that are to come than we'll ever see in this generation. God, give us the eye of faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have my prayer partners come forward, and they're going to be on the outsides here. If there's anything that we can pray with you about, we would love to do that. Maybe it's that you need farther encouragement for faith. Maybe it's that you just need to share something with someone and have them pray with you. Maybe there's sickness in your body, a relational problem. Maybe it's that you need financial provision. Maybe you just need some hope. Whatever it is, we see God move miraculously every week. Come, let us pray for you. If not, let's remind you again, Thursday nights right here from 8 to 9 o'clock. Uh, we fast and we pray. Well, you don't have to fast, but we do get together and we pray and we just worship and it's been incredible. And we pray for our city, we pray for each other, and Jesus is doing amazing things. So come out Thursday, 8 to 9. It will be awesome. And if not, God bless you guys. Stir up that faith this week and we'll see you next week.